Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, Arsenal win the Community Shield as Brewster has trouble with the bar. Chelsea win the Community Shield with Millie Bright but Sam Curless. Speaking of messy finishes, it could be the end for Lionel at Barca. There's transfer tittle-tattle, England chatter and will somebody think of the head of the Mykonos Tourist Board? This is the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello listener, Matt Davis-Adams here, filling in for Jimbo today. Let me temper your understandable disappointment at that news by revealing the makeup of today's panel. First up, the author of Do You Speak Football, a book described by Amazon user Matt, not me, as funny. No pressure there then, Tom Williams. Uh, Hi Matt, actually quite happy with that as a review because uh, it's positive while creating no sense of expectation whatsoever, which is exactly what you want succinct uh, also on board statistical guru and actual chairboy. he's sitting down and supports Wickham Duncan Alexander hello Duncan hello how are Hi. you yeah I'm really good thank you and making his totally debut senior writer for the athletic and one quarter of the outstanding straight out of Cobham podcast it's Dominic Fryfield not that you're biased in any way on that one man <laughs> no quite <laughs> uh, to Saturday then and the customary Drake divider for the forthcoming campaign You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of The Athletic Podcast Network. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, take out a 30-day trial to see their unrivaled coverage of each and every Premier League club by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Yes, after an interminable wait, football finally returned this past weekend as the men's and women's community shields took place at Wembley. We'll start with the men's version. FA Cup winners Arsenal victorious over champions Liverpool to lift their second trophy of the month. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang had them ahead, a lovely goal and a lovelier celebration, paying tribute to the late Chadwick Boseman. Takumi Minamino's equaliser sent it to a shootout, something in which the Gunners surely have an unfair advantage. After Ian Brewster missed, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang hit the winning penalty. Lucas Torreira capturing the mood of Gunners across the globe on Twitter. He said, Grande Equipo at Arsenal, all caps, Campiones, trophy emoji, medal emoji, green tick emoji, FA Cup, green tick emoji, community shield, hashtag, come on Gunners, red circle emoji, muscly arm emoji, hashtag LT11. Uh, Quite. So already the second trophy of Mikel Arteta's short managerial career. One can debate the credibility and certainly the aesthetical quality of this particular one. Uh, but, Dom, fair to say a more significant piece of silverware for Arsenal to win than it would have been for Liverpool. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's all part of a process with Arsenal, isn't it? We, we wanted to see evidence that uh, Mikel Arteta's philosophy... And, and, and the way he thinks about the game, what he's got planned for that team is moving in the right direction. We, we saw that with the FA Cup last season, less so possibly at, at times in, in the league. But, you know, 29 games into his, his Arsenal managerial career, he can point to two pieces of silverware already. Um, I, I'm not, not one to get overly excited about the Community Shield, but I do remember covering Liverpool back in, back in the day in 2001 and Gerard Houllier counting it as one of the... Uh, Five trophies they won in a calendar year, or was it three? I can't remember. It was a, it was a, there was an awful lot of silverware they were celebrating at Anfield at the time, and and it was significant for them because it had been so long since they they'd been lifting major trophies. So Arsenal will probably be thinking along the same lines now, hence Torreira's excitement and and overuse of emojis. I must. Admit, I've never fully understood why people are quite so sniffy 
about the community shield slash charity shield in this country. The fact that, you know, we, we tend to think of it as a pre-season friendly with no meaning whatsoever. When in actual fact, it's a game that, you know, that takes place every year between the league champion and, and the cup winner, a game that people generally look forward to, a game that the teams playing mm-hmm. in tend to take quite seriously. And you do get a trophy at the end, even if it is one that doesn't, you know, hold much importance. I'm not saying that anyone should get carried away, but the speed with which people turn on, it's only a friendly, when people try and draw any, um, you know, significance from the game, I've always found a little bit odd. I would say on that, though, that this one, A, I think we finally found a game that really does need fans at it to enjoy. It was a bit of a sort of turgid procession at times. And also um, the fact it only essentially came a week after the end of the previous season kind of lessened the excitement, I think. You know, normally, like you say, Tom, there is, a, there is a bit of excitement. There's a bit of, oh, we might see a new signing or two. But it was like, oh, Arsenal Liverpool, I remember them from a couple of weeks ago. So <laughs> It's also that, it, that we're still two weeks away from the new season as well. I mean... If it's a curtain raiser to the new season, then it's got to happen on the eve of the new season. It can't have an international break in between between the Community Shield and the start of the Premier League. It just it just doesn't feel right. It just feels if he's sort of sandwiching it in for the sake of doing it. And the other thing about it is obviously the whole state that we're in in terms of in terms of fitness. Um, I mean, David Luiz just had one training session ahead of a of a game. He, he can't get that excited about it. I think. I mean, look, it was actually quite a good game of f- football, but but yeah, I agree completely with Duncan on the the lack of supporters. You do feel it, and we're feeling it more and more. To be honest, and I, part of me worries about getting two and a half thousand fans into a stadium, a massive bowl of a stadium. Are we going to get overly excited by that? Probably not. They're going to look like two and a half thousand supporters in a stadium of 80,000 people. It's going to be a bit weird. I just Everybody's sort of craving a return to some kind of normality, aren't we? Uh, in terms of the game, Aubameyang, again, the key man for Arsenal. Fifth goal in, in three games at Wembley before scoring the, the aforementioned winning penalty. Arteta convinced this particular P is staying in the Arsenal pod. What, what do you think, Tom? Is this enough to to convince him that there will be trophies for him to sometimes lift successfully and sometimes drop on the floor? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, he did slightly better with that yesterday than he did uh, after the FA Cup final. I mean, he wasn't quite as, as positive about the situation after the game as Arteta was. Arteta made it sound as if, you know, it was basically a done deal and Aubameyang was a little bit more coy. Maybe that's just him sort of covering his bases. But I think what we did see uh, once again was was his fundamental importance to Arsenal because, as Don was saying, you know, there is clearly, um, you know, a strategy in place there with Arteta. I thought tactically they were really interesting, Arsenal, yesterday. A back five in the defensive phase and then a back four um, in the attacking phase, and we saw that with a goal with uh, Aubameyang and Tierney and Maitland-Niles all getting forward down the left-hand side uh, and giving Aubameyang or helping Aubameyang find the space to to cut in and score that goal. Um, and as we've seen um, in these showpiece games at Wembley, they, they really look like they know what they're doing when they come up against top-level opposition. But I think for that to work and for Arsenal to succeed with these counter-attacking tactics keeping Aubameyang is absolutely vital because he's shown in, in, in each of these games that he really does only need one sight of goal to settle a match. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I think it I think it'll help that, that he was the key man again, both with the goal and with the decisive penalty. And yeah, you, the, the mood music seems to suggest that, you know, he is going to be sticking around. But uh, yeah, I think this has really underlined how important he is to Arsenal and, and how desperate they need to try and hold on to him. 
Maybe one of the uh, reasons the Aubameyang's contract is delayed is that the club are making him sign in that strange font they're using on the back of their shirts, which they uh, they use in the cup final and in the Community Shield. They won't be able to in the Premier League, but it does look like something out of nightmare from ITV. You know, very kind of gothic. In terms of Liverpool, I guess the main plus point was Takumi Minamino finally opening his account for the club. Uh, according to Opta Joe, the first player to score his first goal for Liverpool at Wembley. Duncan, do you think we'll look back on this as, as the game where his career in English football kicked off or, or will it be a question in the Opta Christmas quiz in a couple of years' time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's obviously a, a good player and it's taken him it's a very difficult situation to come into. I mean, I felt a bit sorry for him during the trophy presentation for the Premier League because he looked a little bit on the periphery of things. You know, it's a, quite a tight-knit club to come into, but he did OK. I mean, I thought that it was interesting. Klopp uh, kind of pulled a Mourinho by playing the worst midfield he possibly could, possibly as a kind of message to the board, as you know, Thiago, please, soon. Um, and, yeah, the, I saw a lot of Liverpool fans saying, they, you know, not Milner and Ronaldo in midfield again. Um, you know, Liverpool were pretty poor first half, came into it the second half, um, but then once they had equalised, kind of, you know, sort of sat off again, and Arsenal probably should have should have won in normal time. And then, yeah, as you said earlier, bringing Brewster on specifically, uh, for the penalty and him, him being the only person to miss was uh, was a bit of a shame. But um, yeah, I think both Brewster and Minamino are obviously going to gonna play uh, a role this season because Liverpool aren't going to go out and sign loads of players. Yeah, the great thing, I guess, Dom, for, for managers in the Community Shield is if you win it, you say it's a trophy. If you lose it, you say it's a, it's a pre-season friendly. Liverpool, though, dropping eight points from their last seven games. Is there anything to worry about or is that a just typical kind of post-title fatigue? I think it's difficult to read too much into any of the, the post-lockdown fixtures, given the sort of unique nature of it all and the sort of cram of fixtures that every club was being subjected to. Liverpool had, were on the verge of winning the league prior to lockdown. They they did it after two two games, two, three games post-lockdown. And, and after that, it was almost inevitable, given half of them were drunk for most of the year. For the remaining fixtures, that they were probably tail off in terms of results and performance. Um that that said, I know there's a there is a competitive spirit, and that they will want to carry some momentum into this into this campaign. But I, I don't have any concerns about the way Liverpool are going. It's, there's so much right about that club, and I think Klopp is already talking about the sort of hunger and the the belief within the squad. And sometimes he's coming out with a line about how sometimes continuity can can be beneficial, and you know you don't want to upset the balance basically of the squad and the and the team by suddenly introducing new players and new talent into into what is being a, a successful collective already I would have liked them and they've still got time to do this I'd like them to bring in maybe one just to just to spruce it up a bit just to add an element of competition and, and maybe in that midfield is the way forward and, and Thiago is the obvious candidate imagine what he would do in that in that team I think given the the performances he put in for Bayern and that we've seen recently we've obviously all watched quite a lot of Bayern recently and he's just such an outstanding talent and he would he would clearly add something extra to that Liverpool midfield. I had a quick look actually because obviously everyone's been saying Liverpool have been worse since the restart. I had a look at their XG and they actually had lower XG in the in the restart fixtures than West Ham among others. 
Um, which again, as Dom said, you know, they had basically sealed the title and it is very hard to kind of play out. You know, they, they won the title earlier in terms of games than anyone, than anyone else in, uh, in top flight history. But at the same time, you know, Firmino didn't score at home till right at the end of the season. You know, obviously they were linked with Werner for so long. Um, you do wonder that could be a narrative of the autumn, couldn't it? If Werner starts well at Chelsea and Liverpool don't start too well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a bit of a, a thing amongst fans. I mean, it's one of the issues that Liverpool have got is that it's it's basically impossible to improve their first eleven. I mean, obviously there are certain players out there who could slot in and, and, and give them something different. But OK, if Thiago comes in, he goes into the team. But who else is going to be at risk of losing their place? None of them. And, and that can be a strength in that, you know, those players are all used to playing together. And we saw, you know, what a f- formidable unit they were last season. But at the same time, when players know that their positions aren't under threat... That, that does provide a problem uh, when it comes to motivating them and, and keeping people on their toes. And, you know, what, what Klopp needs is for people like Mina Mino, for Naby Keita as well, who came on yesterday, to step up a little bit and, and look much more like potential alternative starters rather than just, you know, squad deputies. Well, Liverpool have got a couple of weeks to add some new faces to their squad. They kick off against Leeds at Anfield in the late game on Saturday, the 12th of September. Arsenal starting things off for the new Premier League campaign. They go to Fulham at lunchtime. Well, earlier on Saturday, Chelsea and Manchester City squared off in the first Women's Community Shield in more than a decade. We'll discuss that after this. Everyone remembers that time you've had that peach of an accumulator looking good only for... Oh, and the keeper's let it slip through his legs in the 94th minute. Or the right back has to pull on the gloves and face a penalty. Or Man United have again conceded a late equaliser. But with Paddy Power's Acker Cracker, you get a free bet if one leg of your fourfold plus Acker lets you down on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10. Minimum odds of 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeCumbleAware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Bright from range. Oh, Scorcher! Brilliant goal, Millie Bright. Well, she doesn't get many, but she remember that one. What a belter that was. Chelsea lead in the community shield. Women's domestic football returned to England for the first time since February as Chelsea and Manchester City squared off under the arch in the first ever Women's Community Shield played at Wembley. Katie Wyatt was on hand to witness Chelsea's win and she joins us now. Katie, first of all, explain for us, please, why this game was played between the teams who finished first and second in the league rather than the champions and the FA Cup winners. Um, Yeah, it's because this season there hasn't been an FA Cup um, champion yet. It's the champion Manchester City were the champions of the last FA Cup in 2019 against West Ham. Um, And this year they're going to finish the FA Cup from last season, from the 2019-20 season at Wembley, and then they're going to play it again. Um, from the start for the for this season, if that makes sense. So there'll be two FA Cups in the league this year. And Chelsea going into this game as WSL champions, awarded it on points per game. They, they were second in the table when the season was curtailed. It was 0.1 points that they that they won it by. And that minuscule margins only stoked the, the already fervent rivalry between Chelsea and City, presumably. Definitely, yeah. I mean, you're starting to see within these two teams in particular, it's, it's very, very tight between these two and Arsenal and it's very very difficult for teams to kind of break into and beat the elite three as it were um, but these two in particular the last time they played each other they had a 3-3 draw at Man City Stadium and Georgia Stanway had a penalty saved by Ann Kutrenberger who was the goalkeeper yesterday and 
at the time obviously we didn't know the impact that coronavirus was going to have on the season and on wider society but you look back now and that was sort of the moment and the penalty save that decided the destination of the title really and although City publicly um, were very kind of magnanimous about it and were saying you know we understand that health is far more important and we're fine with not finishing the season you can imagine that losing the um, title by 0.1 of a point when they were leading and they were first and Chelsea were behind them having played fewer games and um, would have probably aggrieved them slightly a little bit behind closed doors, you imagine. Um, but you're starting to see, as we were saying, the making's a real contest between them. It's always tight when they play each other and very similar quality and calibre of players. And City have recruited really, really well this summer. And Chelsea, the word is that they're trying to get Peniel harder from Wolfsburg. So that would be good recruitment for them too. So it's just a, a, a real battle, I think, for for the um, top spot between those two. In terms of Saturday's game, it, it took a stunning goal from Millie Bright to break the deadlock, but that came after Sam Kerr had an afternoon to forget. Definitely, yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit early to sort of compare it to Fernando Torres and say she's going to be a bit of a white elephant for Chelsea because we have seen in the league, um, particularly last season, she played, I think it was seven or six games in the league, um, but you saw the makings of real partnership with Bethany England and that was at work in the League Cup final as well um, so you can look at it in terms of her and the best striker in the WSL have already got a very um, flourishing partnership and she's just about finishing and finding the net is, is where she's falling short and she's won one trophy after seven games is one way of looking at it but obviously as you were seeing at Wembley yesterday there was just the basic finishing that was really lacking for her I think the build-up was there and the ideas were there but it was just approaching on the wrong angle or um, striking the ball in an awkward way and just these basic things that as a really potent forward and a forward of the class that she has been over the last few years it was really really striking and odd to see her failing at the things that she was failing at so Emma Hayes came out and defended her and said that it was far more about her contribution off the ball yesterday and and then more about the the tireless work she was doing and the chances she was creating than the finishing but I do think that it will be a real concern for her and for, for Chelsea that she if she doesn't get fit and fire in this season. How significant was the um, sending off of, of Jill Scott for she got a second yellow card didn't she for a challenge on, on G and that kind of changed the game in Chelsea's favour? I think it definitely did I mean I would say that Chelsea were edging it beforehand I think that they started the better of the two teams I think just after half time City probably had the bit between their teeth a little bit more but I think that the um, Jill Scott sending off kind of really tilted the game in Chelsea's favour, not just because they're down to 10 players, but that midfield um, for Chelsea with Sophie Ingle in particular and G, without someone like Jill Scott as the experienced head and the extra body in midfield, um, it's going to be very, very difficult to sort of stop those two Chelsea players just pummeling ball after ball and chance after chance in. And you saw that, that it was Ingle that spotted um, Millie Bright who would come up from midfield in the gap in the middle there so I think it was quite telling that that was the moment that the game shifted and City really ended up on the rack so I think that City will probably look back and think losing Jill Scott after an hour just an, just an hour gone and then losing Lauren Hemp after 20 minutes wasn't part of their plan so they will be hoping that it would be a lot closer the next time they meet. Gareth Taylor's first game as City boss unusual circumstances for, for him to make his bow he had a dreadful jacket on but, but how did he do other than that? <laughs> I think it's very difficult to assess after one game. I think it's a huge challenge for him coming in. Obviously, he's been very prominent within City's academy and, and City's under-18 side in particular. But to come into 
a first team environment and a side that are very used to winning them and that are expected to compete with the likes of Chelsea, Arsenal every year and Chelsea who are serial winners as we've seen over the last few years and now won everything domestically that there is to win is a huge challenge and I was reading on the BBC preview yesterday they were saying that there are, with the FA Cup being doubled, six, seven trophies up for grabs this year that he'll be expected to compete in with the being in the Champions League as well so I think the extent of the challenge that's facing him in terms of the amount of stuff he's expected to win is just huge so I think the big test for him will be not only if he can rival Nick Cushing's success who as we saw was had won the WSL had won the Continental Cup had won the FA Cup and was very good at preparing City for those big games but also if he can go one step further than Nick Cushing and get them into the latter rounds or the final of the Champions League which I think when you're looking at the players that they're signing and they're rumoured to be bringing in for both City and Chelsea, it seems to be where their ambitions lie. Finally, Katie, we've mentioned those two teams strengthening or looking to strengthen in the in the transfer market. The WSL season kicks off next weekend. Do you think that Arsenal or, or maybe Manchester United or anyone else will be able to keep pace with Chelsea and City? Um, my fear for Arsenal, although they won the league um, two years ago with a really, really strong squad, is that they're they've strengthened and they've got a very good core of players, but it's outside of that starting eleven. And the number of times that they've not been able to feel the full bench, that worries me slightly. Whereas you look at Chelsea and City and you see the depth where they've kind of got two, three potential starting 11s that will dominate most of the USL sides. Um, but I do think this is my worry with sort of the big signings that we're seeing coming to the WSL. I think for these big international stars at the moment in the English league very much seems to be where it's at and seems to be the place where they hope they can fulfil their ambitions domestically and presumably with regards to competing in Europe and in the Champions League. But I do worry, even though we are seeing clubs like Everton put more money in, are some other clubs going to be left behind? Are you going to see a gap um, emerging between the top three, then maybe four, five, six, and then just others that are left behind or struggling to keep up? We like to think of it as a very, very competitive league and sometimes we have seen evidence of that. But I think far more you're seeing one where three teams are breaking away. Um, but I still the big test for them is whether they can compete with the elite teams in Europe like the Wolfsburgs and the Leons. Katie Wyatt, currently of the Telegraph, soon to be of the Athletic there. Next up for us, the most incredible split since Zinedine Zidane's trousers. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Humillación histórica del Bayern al Barça en Lisboa. Ver para creer. Se enfrenta ya el Barça al abismo más absoluto. Crisis, incendio, hoguera, lo que quieran. Barça 2, Bayern 8. So, after 19 years, 33 trophies, 634 goals and 6 Ballon d'Ors, Lionel Messi handed in a transfer request to Barcelona on Tuesday of last week. A Spanish newspaper asks, answering the question on the lips of everybody outside of Spain, a Bureaufax is a service provided by Spain's postal service, brackets Carrios, close brackets, for sending documents where it's necessary to prove that the document was delivered and also the contents of that document. Uh, Messi wants to exercise a clause in his contract stating he could leave for free. The club believe that expired at the end of May, which would leave his release clause at €700 million. Euros. He's out of contract next summer. Having wiped the tears from his eyes and the lump from his throat, our own Alvaro Romeo joins us now. Uh, Alvaro, as we record the show, news has broken that La Liga are effectively siding with Barcelona, having released a statement saying Messi's buyout clause is still active. Um, was that expected and what does it mean for any potential move? 
I don't think that that was very expected, but uh, La Liga doesn't accept one scenario. It's the one that uh, yesterday Cadena Ser uh, reported. Uh, Cadena Ser said yesterday that Messi could leave for free, uh, as he did not sign a four-year contract in 2017, but a three-year contract plus an optional one. And according to this information, uh, Messi will have no obligation to pay his release clause uh, during this optional season. So La Liga has taken the side of Barcelona, sent a statement on Sunday lunchtime saying that Messi's contract is still valid and saying as well that they wouldn't allow Messi to free himself uh, unilaterally unless, unless he paid uh, his release clause, which is uh, 700 million. So yeah, this is where we are at. I don't know or I don't think that La Liga had to do this. Uh, I see where they are coming from because uh, after all, like losing Messi after Neymar and Cristiano Ronaldo would be bad for the brand. Uh, but however, I wonder if they would have sent a statement like this if a uh, mid-table club uh, and not Barcelona was involved in a problem of this magnitude. Um, are you convinced that he actually wants to leave or, or is it a power play to, to try and bring down the president, Josep Bartomeu? At some point, I, I thought and uh, many would have thought as well that Lionel Messi's um, intention was either to leave or either to get Bartomeu out from Barcelona. Mm, but uh, I don't think that uh, that is very valid now. I do believe that Lionel Messi has a genuine intention to leave because he's making a huge effort to exit the club. He doesn't like what he sees, and I can understand that uh, you know there have been some things uh, that went against Messi. The relationship between the president and him is totally broken. Messi barely talks to him and uh, I understand his reasons to live. But uh, we cannot forget that Messi has been part of the problem too. I mean, since uh, 2015, uh, the club has done a lot to, to please Messi. And I think that the three plus one optional year contract with the possibility to live uh, is a good example of that. The club has tried to please the player. But the club has grew a frustration with the squad along the way with every disappointment in the Champions League. So they have burned the bridge. Lionel Messi has been the one who has stopped uh, the contact with Bartomeu. Even the way he said he wanted to leave was a very cold one. I mean, he sent a, a fax to the club premises saying that he didn't want to, to be there. And yeah, I think that Lionel Messi has a genuine intention to leave. The question is how and uh, how costly is going to be for him or for Barcelona. So not an easy start to life as Barca manager for Ronald Koeman. On Monday, we hear reports that he told Luis Suarez, Arturo Vidal, even Rakitic and Samuel Mtiti to find new clubs and then allegedly told Messi his privileges are over. How's his appointment been, been received by Barca supporters? Mm, I think that there, there is a part of, a, of the fan base that uh, like Koeman a lot as a player for what he did for Barcelona. He scored the, the goal in that final against Sampdoria in 1992 in the maiden uh, Barcelona's European Cup. But at the same time, there is, a, I think that Kuman's appointment has been also put in, in this uh, heavy washing machine that uh, washes everything very quickly. And you end up forgetting uh, facts because they come very quickly and there is no time to think about them. I mean, uh, let's not forget that uh, so many things have happened in the last uh, six or seven months. I mean, the social media scandal possibly orchestrated by the club, Kike Setien being appointed in mid-season when Barcelona was leading the table, uh, Barcelona 
navigating the financial crisis worse than any other club, not winning a title for the first time since 2008, Barcelona losing 8-2 to Bayern, uh, Piquet saying that he would leave if he was the problem, and then Ronald Koeman being appointed, and after that, Lionel Messi saying that he wants to leave. So, as you see, there have been so many news... Uh, that Barcelona's year, this season, has been like a dog year that counts uh, for seven. Lastly, <laughs> <laughs> uh, on Messi, uh, Alvaro, if, if you were to, to hazard a guess now, where do you think he'd be playing his football at the start of next season? At, at Barcelona, at Manchester City or somewhere else? I, I find it so difficult that he will play for Barcelona again after all that has happened. And I'm sure that... Uh, something has been broken between uh, Barcelona and Messi forever and uh, it cannot be repaired, really. I mean, how many things uh, have to happen for Barcelona and Messi to be together happy? Again, I think that Messi has made a mistake, uh, has had a confusion between Barcelona the board and Barcelona the club and Bar Messi owes himself to the club as well. Today, he didn't turn up for his PCR test for COVID-19 at the club premises and I think that... Uh, Logic says that Manchester City will be his uh, best possible destination at the end of the day. He's got people there that understand him. He has worked with them. Chique Vigristain, Pep Guardiola, Ferran Soriano. And yeah, uh, probably it would be, you know, logical to think that Manchester City will be the ideal destination. But at the same time, uh, Manchester City will uh, probably not get into trouble if they perceive that uh, hiring Lionel Messi would uh, mean some judicial problems uh, because who knows maybe he thinks that he can live for free and uh, in few months uh, justice says that Lionel Messi has to pay his release clause because he left Barcelona in bad terms or um, you know uh, not following the law. And before we let you go Leeds announced the club record signing of Rodrigo from Valencia this weekend what can you tell us about him? Well number one Rodrigo wanted to leave Valencia um, and he wanted last year in fact uh, he was on his way to Madrid. He was driving uh, about a year ago uh, to Madrid uh, because Atletico de Madrid was going to sign him and the signing got uh, aborted uh, as he was uh, on his way to the Spanish capital. Uh, he is a player who can attack from the wing. He's not a natural, natural striker, but he can produce in a good season about 15 to 20 goals, which is a really good turnout. And uh, I believe that he's still in a good uh, condition. I mean, he had a few injuries last season, but he's quick. He can operate uh, on the left, but he, I believe that he does it better when he starts uh, his playing from the, from the right. And uh, yeah, he, he is very technical, uh, not very physical in the box, quick. And I believe that he's very clever as well. He's the kind of player that Marcelo Bielsa can uh, get a great performance from. In terms of Messi, Tom, PSG have been linked with him. What's the word from Paris on that? Yeah, I mean, if Messi were to go to PSG, you would have a front three of Messi, Neymar and Mbappe, which would just be, you know, aubergine emojis off the scale. Um, Leonardo, the PSG sporting director, has apparently called Messi's dad to sound him out about uh, what Messi Jr. is going to do. But the expectation in... France is that he's going to end up at City. That's what L'Equipe reported this morning. Um, PSG and Barcelona's relationship has been a little bit frosty ever since Neymar left uh, in 2017. And also, fundamentally, I just I don't think PSG could afford it. As, as bottomless as the pockets of their owners are, 
you know, they spend so much paying uh, Mbappe and Neymar as it is, uh, and we'll have to spend so much as to hold on to those two players to the end of their respective contracts, um, much as uh, everyone at PSG and everyone in French football would love to see Messi at Parc des Princes. Um, I can't see him. Dom, in, in terms of other English clubs interested in him, there have been a few reports linking Chelsea, but it's going to be Manchester City if anybody in the Premier League, isn't it? Yeah, I can't see the Chelsea... I can't see the Chelsea one. I mean, I know it sounds insane, but because he is clearly and has been for a long time the one, the best player in the world. But a 33-year-old doesn't actually fit into Chelsea's thinking at the moment up, up top. It does at the back, obviously, with Thiago Silva, but um, but not not in terms of their front line. Not when they've they've signed Timo Werner already um, and Kai Havertz potentially coming in in the next few days. Um, I think they're thinking more long term and, and as, as much as there have been plenty of times over the last 15 years when Roman Abramovich would have looked at Lionel Messi and, th- and thought, yeah, I'd, I'd love to sign him and bring him in as a as a hell of a statement to, to deliver to the Premier League and to world football. I, I just don't think that's on the agenda anymore at Stamford Bridge. Um, Duncan, how many Messi in a Wickham shirt memes have you been sent this week and what, what's your best Messi stat? Yeah, it's been a massive week for for all clubs, really, in terms of creating you know easy content, hasn't it? Even Sean Dyche was getting involved with some you know fairly uh, all right banter to say that, <laughs> but he was going to go to Burnley. Akin Fenwer obviously came in as well and you know pasted Messi's head on a Wickham shirt, so all all good fun. I mean, in terms of I mean, Don makes a good point there, and you know he's thirty three. We don't know how long he's going to carry on. There is a few signs of decline um, over the last season. You know, he he didn't score many goals away from home last season. He's, he's kind of becoming the sort of player that does it in fits and starts rather than dominates whole games. But just to put into context how good he's been, since August 2008, um, Messi has scored or assisted 45% of Barcelona's goals, which um, seems reasonable. Wilfred Zaha levels, that is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is pretty astonishing. Right, producer Charlie will now retrospectively add an advert or sting. Once that's finished, you'll hear us talking about Chelsea. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. If you're not yet a subscriber, take out a 30-day trial right now by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Pre-season friendlies have been taking place up and down the land, the most newsworthy of which was at the Amex on Saturday, where Timo Werner scored for Chelsea on his not-really debut in a one-all draw against Brighton. Uh, the significance coming from the fact that 2,500 Brighton supporters were allowed in as part of the government's latest pilot scheme. Fingers crossed supporters in stands will be a familiar sight come October. Uh, Chelsea-wise, it's been a busy old time, having already secured Werner and Hakim Ziyech somewhere in the region of £85 million. They last week signed Ben Chilwell for £50 million and free agent Thiago Silva. And as Don mentioned, Kai Havertz supposedly imminent for around £90 million. Still five weeks of the window left and a global pandemic affecting the economy. Dom, you and Liam Toomey wrote for The Athletic about how Chelsea can afford this. Yeah, and I guess it always boils down to the fact they're bankrolled by an oligarch um, with bottomless pockets. Um 
But beyond that, and, and you can add to that, I suppose, two transfer windows where they didn't spend any money whatsoever, one with a FIFA transfer ban and one because they just didn't think the, the players were there in, in January for them to, to strengthen sufficiently. Um, this was always going to be a big summer for them. And you have to bear in mind, um, amidst all the outcry at the, you know, they must be flouting FFP rules, etc. A, those FFP rules have been relaxed somewhat during the pandemic, but also that with the, the way the accountancy works on all these things, the the Hazard and Murata money actually goes into the next set of accounts. So although they 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 recorded, I think it was a hundred and one million pound loss for for twenty eighteen nineteen, uh, the, the money for that they received from those two players, which is again in excess of one hundred and fifteen million pounds, I think, um, will go into next season's accounts, which is also when. The Werner, Ziyech, Chilwell, Thiago Silva, etc., comes into in, into into those figures as well. So then you then you throw in amortisation, which tends to make people click off articles quite quickly. But but the reality is that you can spread the cost when it comes to your accounts, not in terms of when you're paying the money to a to a club you're buying a player from, but in terms of your accounts, you can spread the cost of a transfer fee over the length of that player's contract. So if a player signs a five year contract and costs fifty million pounds, and then that money is ten million pounds a year plus his wage, it goes into every financial year's accounts. And if you then give him an extra three year contract during the course of that, then then you can effectively spread it over eight years. So it's a common accountancy tool. It's not something that, that football clubs are using as a loophole. It's just it's how things work. Um, and it, it allows these clubs to to, to comply within FFP uh, guidelines to a certain extent. Um, so, yeah, the £90 million that they'll spend on, on Havertz, they'll be comfortable spending that money. Um, it remains to be seen whether they can uh, find a goalkeeper uh, as well. And obviously, I, I, I don't think they'll be spending O-Black levels of, of money this this summer. And, they, and you know, they, they won't be spending £60 million on Declan Rice either. So they are being quite realistic about it. But but the bulk of the spending that they're making now should stand them in very good stead for the next few transfer windows at the very, very least. Um, Havertz then, we keep being told that, that it's imminent. Only turned 21 in June. Youngest player in Bundesliga history to get to 50 and then 100 appearances. Already plenty of experience. And Duncan, make, makes a change to see a talented young German come to England rather than the other way around. Yeah, it's almost, we've entered a world where it's like a kind of school exchange trip where, you know, any good English youngster goes to Bundesliga and and vice versa. But yeah, I mean, Havertz's numbers were brilliant and he's so versatile as well and he can play pretty much anywhere up front and uh, you know attacking midfield he I think he's possibly a, a bigger signing than than Werner although obviously Werner as you said it doesn't count when you score in a friendly but he took it pretty well even though the the assist from uh, Hudson and Doyle almost knocked him over it's, it's, you know the most physically abusive assist in football history I think but um, yeah no it's exciting and you know I think Chelsea it feels like a really like a renewal, doesn't it? I mean, it slightly sticks in the throat a little bit in the sense that last this time last year we were all saying, you know, look at Frank giving all the all the kids a chance. Um, but I think they still fit into the ethos. So yeah, um, but they need to sort out that defence. Uh, Tiago Silva, then Tommy's got fifteen years on Havertz. Did PSG want to keep him? What, what What's his legacy in Paris? And will Chelsea be able to get a decent season at least and maybe two out of him? 
I mean, there was a split at, at PSG. Um, Leonardo, the sporting director, announced a couple of months ago that um, Thiago Silva would be allowed to leave at the end of this season, um, uh, that his contract would not be renewed. But Thomas Tuchel, the PSG coach, kept hinting that perhaps he might stay. Um, you know, he said it after the domestic cup finals. He said it after the Champions League final. Each time the question was, you know, Thiago Silva is obviously an important player for you. Is there any chance of him sticking around? And he he, he kept saying, oh, you know, maybe let's just wait and see. Um, so there was there was clearly a split there. And I, I think Leonardo just felt that given Thiago Silva's age, you know, the time had come to turn the page. But certainly his performances in the last couple of seasons, he's been the best centre-back in Liga. Um, you know, one of the greatest players in PSG's history. Um, and looks like he's got, at the very least, another season at the top level uh, in his legs. Uh, he's spoken about wanting to carry on uh, until the, the Qatar World Cup. Um, so clearly, you know, he's not sort of thinking about easing off anytime soon. I think the one reservation that there is about Silva is his ability to play in a high defensive line. Something that we saw with PSG quite a lot in their various Champions League disasters was that when things started to get jittery, his natural inclination is just to run 15 yards, 20 yards closer to his own goal. Um, and, you know, we saw that most famously in the remontada against Barcelona, where you wanted Thiago Silva as the boss of that defence to be the guy who said, no, come on, you know, cleared the heads and, and sort of sorted things out. And he wasn't able to do that. We know that Frank Lampard wants to play aggressive front foot football. So that's a potential issue. Uh, but in terms of his ability, his fitness, his leadership qualities, I think he's a really good signing. Not just Chelsea have been busy bolstering. Other transfers of note since we last podded include Crystal Palace pinching England under-21 international Eberichi Eze from QPR on Friday for an initial £16 million. 14 goals and 8 assists for the hoops in the championship for him last season. He completed more dribbles than any player in the Division 2. A tweet here from Niall Boyle for you, Dom. He says... Where will Zaha realistically go, if anywhere? Do you think that Eze has been brought in to, to complement or replace Zaha? Complement. <laughs> Is that head or heart? A bit of both, really. I, 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 Wilfred Zaha turns 28 later this year, um, and he's still going to command, a, as far as Palace are concerned, he's going to command a massive fee. I mean, he's we're still probably talking £60 million to, to prize him away from, from Celeste Park because of that is what he's worth to to the club and he's got three years left on his contract and you know all, all, most suitors out there will balk at that. They, they, they won't be willing to, to go anywhere near that figure. So I suspect we're going to be in the same sort of situation we've been in for the last two summers with Wilfred Zaha, where he he'll want to go, he'll want to play Champions League football, but the offers, the acceptable offers, simply won't be there. And they played Charlton on um, Saturday. Okay, Charlton, a, a club enduring their own proper crisis at the moment, um, and now a League One team. But but in forty five minutes, we we already saw an understanding between. Eze working off the the left of a front three, and we all know that he he preferred to be as a, a ten uh, in a more central area. But he he was permitted that sort of free roll to drift, and and Zaha sort of flitting around him, um, whether wide or through the middle. And I, I think the early signs were extremely encouraging. You don't want to get too ahead of yourselves, particularly after I've just dissed the, the community shield. But, but that 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 doesn't that 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 bodes quite well for for where it's going. And that Palace team was so stodgy last year. Um, it was effective, and they they stayed up in February, which was the quickest they'd ever done that in in the Premier League. But 
they needed a, a breath of fresh air. They needed they needed some some pace, some invention, some another player that can carry the ball, that can drift past people. And, and I mean, Duncan will, will know from watching him at Wickham. He's that's what he does. He's one of these players that sort of you think you've got him under control, and the next thing he's away. Yeah, he's he's almost unplayable at times. He's also incredibly two footed as well. I think we played. He scored two goals for us against uh, Chesterfield, and the first one was from outside the box with I think with his right foot. Um, and then the next time he picked up the ball in the same spot and you could see the defenders go, right, I'm going to put him onto his left. And he just saw an identical goal with his left foot. It was, um, he was way, way too good to be on loan in League Two, but, you know, Wickham weren't complaining. So. Um, Matt Doherty slash Matt Doherty signs for Spurs from Wolves. Tom, why are, why are Wolves strengthening a rival by selling them somebody who's been one of their best players for the last couple of seasons? Yeah, from the Bulls' perspective, I'm not sure I really understand it. I mean, Doherty has been one of their standout performers since Wolves came up, um, and Spurs have signed him for uh, a very decent fee. And I think you, you look at the way that Spurs played last season, uh, with Serge Aurier getting forward a lot on the on the right-hand side, if they can replicate that with Doherty, who, who I think is... Um, uh, a much more reliable source of goals and assists than, than Aurier will ever be. It, it could be a, a remarkable signing. Um, also, kudos to Spurs uh, and more specifically their social media department for the video they put on Twitter today of Matt Doherty, who is uh, openly uh, uh, a lifelong Arsenal fan, uh, going back through his old tweets and deleting them all. But then right at the end, patting the cockerel on his left breast in a way that suggested his heart perhaps wasn't uh, fully in it. Um, so I'm not sure whether that will uh, that will be enough to uh, to deter Arsenal fans from crowing about the fact that Spurs have just signed a, a diehard Arsenal fan. But yeah, from a football perspective, as as fantasy footy fans will know, Matt Doherty is a very very useful player. And I think given the way that Spurs played with Aurier last season, really getting forward on that right hand side, it's a move that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Everton might be about to do some business. Daniel Story said on this pod a few weeks ago, Carlo Ancelotti needs a whole new midfield. Uh, they're reportedly in for Abdoulaye Decore, Alan and James Rodriguez. Um, Dom, the, the Rodriguez one, maybe is that being driven a bit more by Farhad Mashiri than, than Carlo Ancelotti? It's, it's kind of a glamour signing rather than a, a sensible one, perhaps? It's the one that sets the alarm bells ringing a bit. But then Carlo Ancelotti has worked with him at two clubs, at Real and, and Bayern Munich. So so maybe he, he believes that he, he can coax something out of him in, in the Premier League. But I'll be honest, when you hear that James Rodriguez is being linked with Everton, you do think, oh, that's that's not going to work. That's, that's another huge expense um, and a, a failed move waiting to happen. Um, the other two, uh, Alan has done brilliantly at Napoli, um, and and it looks as if he's he, well. I mean, there's a lot of excitement around that move. Um, and Decoure is a is a player that you well, you know what you're going to get. He's used to the Premier League and and will add a bit more physicality and and drive to that midfield. But Everton. Everton are a bloated squad still. They need to they need to shed more. I know they, I know they get rid of Schneiderlin only in the summer, but the, the, there are other bodies at that club that you just think it might be time for them to to move on. And and shifting those players might be Everton's toughest task of the summer. A lot of players in the sort of late twenties on massive money. Um, and I just look at that and think James Rodriguez is going to be another one. Donny Van der Beek to Manchester United. It looks like it might be a goer. Does anybody have anything to say on this? 
I mean, he's a cracking player, but I, I don't see where he gets into the team in that he's a proper box-to-box midfielder. You know, we saw that in Ajax's run to the Champions League semi-finals the season before last. He's averaged, uh, well, he's scored double figures uh, in each of the last three seasons. We've already got Paul Pogba and Bruno Fernandes in that area of the pitch. Whether it means he comes into the team as sort of a number eight and Pogba is asked to play a little bit deeper um, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of his ability, he was one of the standout players in that Ajax team that, that, that thrilled us all in 2018-19. In and he'd be a, a great addition. I just wonder from his perspective how he fits into that team, given that the United midfield and attack um, you know, looked so settled towards the end of last season. Um, and it, it, I just think of another another box-to-box player. OK, he has a slightly different skill set to, to Pogba and to, to Bruno Fernandes, but I... I I struggle to see how you get those three in the same team and a holding player and Greenwood, Rashford and, and Martial. Yeah, it feels a bit like a sort of transfer where someone said, uh-oh, the season's two weeks away, let's let's go to the page two of our targets and at least get something done. But I mean, he would join quite a, um, a good uh, list of vans to play for Manchester United. Obviously, you've got Van der Sar um, with the record run of not conceding the goal. You've got um, Van Nistelrooy, who before Jamie Vardy had the record scoring run. Uh, Van Persie, everyone knows uh, how good he was. And uh, Raymond van der Howe, possibly slightly less uh, glamorous. But yeah, pretty strong van-based history for the club. So, yeah. Lest we forget Louis van Gaal. Oh, we don't talk about him. I still miss him. Did anyone else still find themselves thinking about Louis van Gaal and just wondering what he thinks about things and just wanting to hear his voice? Is that just me? Possibly just you, Tom, yeah. There's a lot of content this week. We haven't even mentioned the England squad yet, so let's remedy that now. International football returning this coming weekend. Duncan, are you hyped for it? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, as Don mentioned earlier, it is a strange going from the Community Shield to internationals and then the start of the Premier League, but... You know, I think as 2020 goes, that's possibly one of the less odd manoeuvres we're going to go through. But yeah, I think it's a it's obviously a big year for England with the Euros at the end. Um, you know, I think one thing people possibly haven't factored in is that with the big teams basically playing every weekend and midweek until the summer, pretty much, um, there's going to be a lot of injuries. I think, um, and I think that could possibly open up some opportunities for some players we hadn't really considered before. I mean, obviously, Maitland-Niles and, and Connor Cody got called up uh, after the event. So, yeah, I think if I had to predict the, the, the England squad for the Euros, I mean, I think it could be quite you know different to how we imagine. England playing Nations League fixtures against Iceland in Reykjavik on the 5th of September and Denmark in Copenhagen on the 8th. Harry Maguire called up on Tuesday, convicted by a Greek court on Tuesday, withdrawn from the squad on Tuesday, quoting Budder on Instagram and being the headline interview on the BBC 10 o'clock news on Thursday. And Maguire devastated, Craig David livid. You've got to spread this stuff out over the whole week. Um, it's such an odd story, this. Tom, how, how do we think it's been handled by Maguire, Man United and England? Oh, there's a question. Um... The difficulty is we we just don't know what happened, and that's that's at the nub of it. Um, you know, your suspicion is that is that he could perhaps have tried a little bit harder to 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 not leave himself at, at the risk of of being caught up in a situation like that. But at the same time, one of the things that that people really like about Maguire as a, as a bloke is that he he is you know not the kind of typical modern footballer. He he hasn't lost the common touch sort of thing. Um, 
Yeah, it's the, um, the common touch of spending sixty-two grand in a bar. That exactly, exactly that that common touch. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a mess, isn't it? I mean, I you know, it, to the extent that I don't even know what to say about it, <laughs> as this very rambling answer has, has probably made clear. Yeah, I, th- I think taking back the England squad is 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 the right call. Um, even with his legal team having launched an appeal, which you know the, the results of which we we, we do not yet know, I, I think it makes sense to sort of take him out of the the firing line for a little bit. Obviously, United's first fixture of the season has been delayed because of their Europa League commitment, so it means we're not actually going to see him on the football pitch for another couple of weeks. And by then, things will have will have died down a little bit. But yeah, an unfortunate coda to what had been a very a very you know uh, encouraging end to the season for Man United. I think looking back, Gareth Southgate might might possibly have have reconsidered picking him originally. I don't know whether Southgate expected the initial hearing to be the initial trial to to be so swiftly concluded. Um, I, I don't think Gareth Southgate is an expert on the Greek judicial system, like we're not either. But but having withdrawn him from the squad now, we've now got a situation where. Maguire's lawyers are, are going to be notified of the appeal hearing in probably by December, and then the appeal hasn't isn't probably going to take place for another year. So does that mean that Harry Maguire isn't going to be picked in any England squad over the next year? I mean, clearly not. It's he he will be if he's playing for Manchester United, he'll be back in for the next international window. So I think if Southgate had his time again, I think he probably wouldn't have picked him. He would have just sort of made the excuse that Harry's obviously had a, a, a tough time of, of late, uh, off-field issues, and uh, he's tired after a long season at Manchester United that's only just finished. So he won't be ready for these two particular games. Another player attracting headlines for not being in the squad, Jack Grealish. Most failed player in the Premier League last season. Player that carries the ball the furthest distance. Only Kevin De Bruyne played more key passes than him. All achieved for a team in Aston Villa who stayed up on the last day of the season. Southgate saying, Jack is unfortunate and I'll be getting crucified by the Villa fans who've still never forgiven me for leaving for Middlesbrough anyway. But say la vie. Um, always good to hear an England manager casually tossing out bewitched song titles. Uh, but surely, Duncan... Grealish is, is worthy of a place in the squad, at least, isn't he? You'd think so. And, you, I mean, at this stage, it's starting to look like Southgate just doesn't want him in the squad, I would say. And, you know, that's his decision and that's fine. But, you know, I think every England era has a player that never gets the, the caps that people think they deserve from, you know, from Letitia through to to various others. But, I mean, Grealish surely deserves, yeah, at least one chance. But at the same time, if you look at the way he does play for Villa, he is like, every Aston Villa player looks up and says, give it to Jack Grealish and and do something. And and that isn't really the way England play. And you you do look at the front three that England usually uh, play and you do wonder where he would really fit into that and would he slow it down a bit. So there are perfectly acceptable tactical reasons why Grealish isn't in the team, but that isn't really you know, an argument for him not being in the squad, I would say. When you think back to last season and the debate around um, that role in the England squad, in the England team, was was basically who uh, is Gareth Southgate going to pick out of Jack Grealish and James Madison. Slightly surprising to find ourselves in this position uh, with England's first fixtures since last year looming. And the answer to that question turned out to have been James Ward-Prowse. Um, but there it is. And I think what, one thing that does leap out at you when you look at the squad apart from the complete absence of any left-backs, 
is is the sort of lack of of midfield creativity, which has been an issue for Southgate. I think throughout his his tenure as as England manager, there's lots of promising players in there. You know, Phil Foden is is obviously one we're all very excited about seeing. Um, you know, in an England shirt, uh, Mason Mount, another one. But yeah, I personally find it pretty baffling that um, Grealish isn't him. Well, particularly as well because Calvin Phillips has been chosen, and you know, someone who's only ever played in the Championship, and obviously Southgate famously said. Um, a year ago that Grealish needed to show it what he could do in the Premier League um, to get into the squad so you know he's gone back on his own kind of uh, rules there if you like I mean was Southgate once bullied by a football player with socks rolled down to his ankles or something or you know has has there been something in his life that has, that has made him suspicious maybe, of people with Jack Grealish's haircut you, you start well, to maybe, wonder whether there's more to this than meets the eye he's intimidated by incredibly muscular thighs and mm, calves, yeah, mm. worth looking into. I sympathise with him there, to be to be honest. Um, time will tell if Grealish ever does get a place in the England squad. Right, coming up, can Camavinga can can? But first, here's Lee Price from Paddy Power. Well, who would have thought it? Arsenal are officially the most successful club in the country again. Okay, in August. But after their Community Shield glory, the big one, in size terms at least, they are the movers in our top four betting market. They've been backed into 16-5, to five, the Gunners, However, before you get too carried away, that still puts them fifth, with City, Liverpool, Chelsea, United all quite heavily odds-on to fill the top four positions. The other knee-jerk reaction we've made to Community Shield is consolidating our title betting. Man City remain odds-on at 8-11, even with the Messi transfer drifting. They're favourites now to regain their title. Liverpool slightly out to 2-1. to And there's been a lot of excitement around Leeds over the last few days. Um, after they smashed their transfer record to sign an ex-Bolton striker. Yes, really. Leeds are now 1-10 to to stay up. That is confidence. And they're only 17-10 to to finish in the top half. If you really fancy them, it's 12-1 to that Leeds are the highest finisher in the Premier League outside the big six. You never know. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. The Totally Scottish Football Show is out on Tuesday, out like Celtic in the Champions League after their defeat to Ferenc Varos last week. Uh, speaking of UEFA-affiliated club competitions, big shout-out to Coleraine from Northern Ireland, who knocked Maribor out of the Europa League on penalties last Thursday. Maribor drew with Sevilla in the Champions League group stage just three years ago. Totally Football League Show will return in its new Monday slot from the 7th of September. Totally Football Show back on Wednesday with Emma Saunders at the helm, as well as the upcoming Nations League fixtures. I'm sure they'll be talking about Tottenham's Amazon series All or Nothing. That's out on Monday or today, listener, for you. Uh, Tom, you've seen the first three episodes. You described Jose Mourinho as eye-wateringly alpha. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the Jose Mourinho show. Um, And they started recording the documentary right at the beginning of last season uh, when Pochettino was still there. I think he only does maybe one on-camera interview uh, and then he is sacked, at which point Mourinho sweeps in. And it is genuinely really interesting just watching Mourinho trying to impose himself on this new group of players, you know, the sort of slightly awkward... Uh, training ground joshing the one-on-one chats and and Mourinho the whole way through you know doing his level best to make it sure that he uh, doesn't look like he's very conscious that he's on camera the entire time when you know this being Mourinho that of course he is but you see him having these one-on-ones with Harry Kane with Deli Ali with Eric Dyer you know he sort of says to Kane you know you want to be a star I can tell I am a star 
um, I can help you. I can help you get there." And, and Harry Kane just sort of nods and says, "Yeah, you know, sounds good." Um, and that, I mean, that's that's it basically. I mean, those first three episodes, it is all just Mourinho, and you get an incredible level of access. And I think you compare it to the Manchester City documentary which was also made by Amazon, the fascination with, with Pep Guardiola is that he's this tactical mastermind. And I don't think you really saw all that much of that in the Man City documentary. But the thing, Mourinho's thing has always been about his sort of interpersonal skills, his man management, the way he engages with players and finds common ground uh, or fails to find common ground in certain high-profile instances. And, and you really get that in this documentary. So, yeah, definitely one that I'd recommend. Dom, you... you are familiar with Mourinho from from your time covering Chelsea. Are you surprised that he's embraced this project, seemingly? I thought he, he would have been dead against it. Maybe he is, but just not when the cameras are on. I wonder whether post-United he recognised he needed to to take more... Con- well, take control again of, of his image um, and and promote the sort of... Remind the world what, what the charismatic Jose Mourinho is all about. Um, and this is a perfect opportunity for him to do that. Um, not least because he would, given the start that Spurs had had last season, he he could pretty much argue that as long as he made some kind of progress, he was making progress. Um, we saw this when, when he came back. I I I missed out on largely on on Jose first time round at, at Chelsea when we saw the the two extremes over three and a bit years. Um, but I got it second time round. Um, I remember that back in the twenty summer of twenty thirteen, he he there was a charm offensive then. With individual players, one of the, the stories around that, I remember that we went off to in pre-season to, I think Indonesia and and Malaysia and Thailand, and and he sort of went through a succession of public press conferences. He'd pick one player to praise to the hilt in these in these press conferences, and because he was it was a global audience, and he was being asked specific questions about him, and he didn't really want to talk about him. He wanted to talk about and, and praise a, a key player, a Lampard, a, a Cole, a, a Terry, and and he. He he then sort of took his little private briefings with the with the travelling English media, and he he used those times very much to to big up a player that he felt needed to be to sort of brought back into the fold. So he did it with Terry with with me. I, I had a one on one with him. Lucky enough to have one on one with him in about 2013, and I went in there with a load of questions which I asked, and he just wasn't interested at all. And then he he just sort of said, "Why don't you ask me about John Terry?" says okay I'll ask you a question about John Terry and he and he gave me a, a, a really lovely answer which he'd clearly pre-prepared about how he can get the best out of Terry the Rolls-Royce defender he's been suffering of late and he can he can get him playing again and and you know the following season Terry was was excellent and Chelsea won the league and you know the second season back it, it all went very badly wrong after that but but there, there was that reaction and and that that is the man and that that's that sort of He'll use any tactic and any means necessary that he he, he thinks that that will get the best out of his players. Duncan Jeff Bezos presumably quite happy when Maurizio Pochettino got fired because that Manchester City one was painfully dull, and this one should at least be a little bit more lively. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the key point with all these documentaries. That's why the Sunderland one on Netflix was so good, was because what you want to see is a club in free fall in turmoil because. You know, everyone gets. It doesn't matter if you support Tottenham, Chelsea, Sunderland, or anyone. You, you get a kind of very pristine, packaged version of the club from the club. But occasionally, when you see what's going on inside, it's uh, it makes it all seem a lot more real. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think this one 
because Tottenham are a club in a sort of a very strange position, moved to this new ground, um, you know, sacked a manager that got them to the Champions League final, um, brought in possibly the most divisive manager in the mo- in modern football. Um, all of those ingredients, are, you know, should make it pretty good. Before we go, Tom, whilst we've got you, Eduardo Camavinga, not a name that I was familiar with before he went viral, as the kids say this weekend, with a, a brilliant individual goal for Rennes against Montpellier. Tell us about the goal for anyone who hasn't seen it and a bit about the player. Is he going to be at Rennes for long? Yeah, sensational goal. So Rennes Montpellier yesterday afternoon or, or Saturday afternoon, um, picks the ball up out on the left, plays a quick one-two drives into the box, throws a step over, and then does that Ryan Giggs thing where his hips go one way, but his legs go the other way. Pedro Mendes, the Montpellier centre-back, is beating all ends up, and he, uh, Camavinga sticks a, a lovely shot um, past the goalkeeper. Um, yeah, so Camavinga broke into the Ren midfield last season at the age of 16, uh, a remarkably composed, elegant central midfielder. Spent most of the time in the first half of last season playing as the number six, so basically, you know, uh, protecting the, the space in front of the back four, organising the midfield. And it was, you just had to keep reminding yourself that you're watching a kid who was only 16. But I spoke to a couple of his old coaches for a piece that I wrote last season. And they said that he's actually got much more under his belt uh, as an attacking player. You know, he's a guy who, you know, who could be relied upon for six, seven, eight goals a season. Uh, and in January, Ren bought Stephen and Zonzi, um, who came in and took over in that holding position, allowing Camavinga to play a bit further forward. He's now playing in the number 10 shirt. Uh, last season, he only got one goal and I think two assists all season long. Um, we're two games into the new campaign. He's already got a goal and an assist uh, and you're seeing much more of him in the final third. Uh, he's been linked with Real Madrid uh, for quite a long time or basically since he, you know, since he first got into the first team. But with Ren uh, now uh, qualifying automatically for the Champions League group phase, uh, I think he's. It looks like he's decided to stay. I mean, if they were to get a massive bid for him, uh, you know, it would be difficult for them to turn down. Uh, but if he can continue his progress uh, and if he can catch the eye in the Champions League, then I think we're looking at a real superstar and probably a, a real mega transfer at some point next summer. Yeah, not quite Roy Wegerly at Ellen Road back in 92, but it was a great individual goal nonetheless. All right, that's it for today's show. Do join Emma and the gang on Wednesday. For now, though, from Duncan, Dom, Tom and producer Charlie, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.